All right, uh, we are in the home stretch of wrapping up the first year of our Three Years with Jesus series, and the text for this week comes out of Matthew 13 and starts in verse 53. So we're going to read this story where Jesus shows up in his hometown of Nazareth and uh, explore what, what might be going on here and what might it have to say to us today. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So uh, these parables, Jesus uh, taught often by telling stories. And the whole round of parables he had just shared were what are called the kingdom parables. Uh, and the, the Jewish people were anticipating God's kingdom coming in force. They, they are living in the first century under Roman rule, and they are longing for the Messiah to come, and they have ideas of who the Messiah would be, what he would look like, what he would do, and they have ideas of what God's kingdom would be like. And at the top of that list of what the Messiah would look like and what the kingdom would look like, would mean that they would drive Rome out and liberate them so that they could be free from Roman oppression. And, and Jesus comes, and rather than embodying the type of Messiah they are hoping and longing for, he embodies what is called the suffering servant that uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53. Jesus comes embodying a different way of being human and, and walking the long, hard road to the cross. And he tells these stories about the kingdom. They have ideas of what the kingdom is like. And Jesus, whenever he talks about the kingdom, he says, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Or, or the kingdom is like yeast that a woman mixed into 60 pounds of flour. Or uh, the kingdom is like a treasure in a field that a man found. And he went and sold everything he had and came back and bought the field and, and rejoiced greatly. And, and so every time Jesus talks about the kingdom, he uses analogies because it can't be understood fully. It can only be Word pictures and stories, it, it, the way we talk about God is so often in metaphor because we can't understand God. And so the psalmists uh, wrestle with human language trying to describe what God is like. God is a, a rock. God is a mighty fortress. Uh, God is a stronghold. And so we have these metaphors for trying to talk about God. And Jesus had these stories to talk about what the kingdom was like. So he tells these stories, and then he went on, verse 54, to his hometown. And he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. And uh, the idea of amazed here isn't so much uh, he wowed them. It was like shock. Like, what? Whoa, really? We, we know this guy. He grew up here, right? Uh, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Uh, so really fun, uplifting text for this morning uh, to talk about how uh, Jesus' hometown rejected him. And so he, uh, he says a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Um, what could be going on here? Uh, first, uh, 
there is all kinds of questions. There are all kinds of questions about uh, Jesus's early years. And so in first century Israel, uh, you're pretty rooted and grounded. Wherever you are born, that's probably where you're going to stay. Whatever your father did, that is most likely what you are going to do. Uh, this town of Nazareth was small and it was poor. And this is where Jesus grew up, but not until he was around four years old. We don't know exactly how old Jesus was when he moved there, but it was probably around four. If you remember uh, Jesus's early years, first of all, uh, Mary's pregnancy was questionable. Everybody was, so how did this woman get pregnant? Joseph was going to divorce her until an angel spoke to Joseph. And, and Joseph remained with Mary, realizing this, this is God's son, uh, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah who has come into the world as Emmanuel, God with us, who will rescue and save the world. Uh, but there had to be all kinds of questions around Mary's pregnancy. They go to uh, Bethlehem because of the census, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And then uh, a year or two later, Herod the Great wants to kill this so-called king of the Jews that has been born. And so Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. And so they are now refugees in Egypt, living there for we don't know how long, probably a year, two, three years. So approximately at age four, Jesus with Mary and Joseph moves to the town of Nazareth. And that's where they remain. Now imagine the town of Nazareth, this small town. There's all kinds of questions. Where have these people been? What, what have they been doing? What, uh, can you imagine the conversation? So where have you guys been? Oh, you remember that country that enslaved us for 400 years? We went there. Uh, and we lived there. And now we're back. Or, or maybe they just tried whatever they could to avoid the question altogether. Uh, and not talk about it. We don't know. But we do know that this is where Jesus ended up growing up. Uh, and uh, they're saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, why is he a rabbi? Why is he traveling around teaching? Why are these large crowds following him? He should be a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. He should be a carpenter. Instead, he's this itinerant rabbi traveling around, and crowds are following him, and they're offended by this. That, that Jesus, this hometown boy, has made it out of the small town and has a following. Uh, there, there is perhaps a sense of jealousy, a sense of envy, a, a, a sense of uh, why him? Why does he get to make it and we don't? Uh, of course, they don't know the end of the story. Uh, he's going to make it to a cross eventually. Uh, but there is this sense of... He has this following, a following that is probably larger than the population of the town of Nazareth. And so they take offense at him. This, uh, this text in Matthew 13, uh, many believe, is Matthew's version of what was going on in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus showed up at the synagogue in Nazareth and read from the scroll of Isaiah where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today this reading is fulfilled in me. Uh, So basically proclaiming, I I am the Messiah among you. And here, a little further down, they say the same thing. Uh, Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard was done in Capernaum. And Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine through the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And so he's reminding them of scenes in their story that they don't want to be reminded of, namely that God cares about the whole world, not just the Jews, not just Israel. There was this sense of pride amongst Israel. We're God's people. We're God's chosen nation. Uh, God favors us. And, And Jesus is reminding them that God's favor, God's blessing is on the whole world. Uh, That when God called Abram, later becoming Abraham, to uh, give birth to this nation, Israel. It was for the expressed purpose that he was blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. Ultimately, Israel failed at that calling to be a blessing to the whole world. And Jesus comes into the world to be that blessing for the whole world. And Jesus is reminding his hometown, hey, listen, yeah, this warlord, uh, Naaman from Syria, Syria who uh, devastated Israel, God cares about them too. Uh, And so this is a wake-up call for Israel to recognize God's love for the whole world. And so uh, just to give you a sense of of Nazareth, In John 1, early in Jesus' ministry, when the first disciples begin to follow Jesus, Philip is one of those early followers of Jesus. And Philip was so excited about Jesus. He goes to Nathanael and says, we found him. We found the one who was to come. We found the Messiah. You got to come meet him. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Uh, And so Nazareth didn't have a great reputation. Uh, of good things emerging out of it. And Jesus comes out of Nazareth, and he's the Messiah. He's this great teacher. He's working miracles. And the folks in his hometown just can't believe it. How is this even possible? How can this man be the Messiah? How can this man be the one who has come? How can he even be a great teacher? let alone the Messiah. And they took offense at him. And Jesus says, I, I can't do much here because of your lack of faith. Now, Jesus had said something earlier in Matthew 13 that I think connects deeply to what's going on in the hearts and minds of the people of Nazareth. He said... Uh, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, why do you speak in parables? And this was Jesus's response. Again, quoting from Isaiah, he says, I speak in parables because in them is fulfilled the prophet of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. 
For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And so Jesus is saying that a a number of people in his day that he was speaking to, their hearts have become calloused. And, And even though they have eyes to see the physical world, and even though they have ears to be able to hear what people are saying, that they are blind and deaf to what God is showing them and what God is saying. They are blind and deaf to what God is doing in the world. They are blind and deaf to this new thing that is emerging in and through Jesus. I I wonder for us today, I think for the people of Israel, they had their minds made up. They, they were convinced, they knew what the Messiah would look like and what the Messiah would do. They had made the Messiah into their own image. I wonder for us today, in what ways have we made Jesus into our own image? In what ways are we so convinced of what God's kingdom should look like? that we have made the kingdom into what we want it to look like. We're we're so convinced of our own version of Christianity uh, that we have made it into this thing that we think it is, rather than plumbing the depths of the Gospels and exploring the heart of Jesus more and more and more to truly see. Uh, I believe Jesus is constantly inviting us to see more and to hear more. Uh, it, It is my prayer for us that more and more our eyes would be open, our ears would be open, our hearts would be open so that we would turn and experience more healing. This is the invitation, the ongoing constant invitation from Jesus to see more, to hear more, to experience more of God, and for our hearts to be ever more open to experience more healing. Uh, One of the great dangers that has emerged in Western Christianity is the idea that we, we believe in Jesus and we're all set. Uh, when that is not the version of Christianity Jesus came to give us. Jesus invited us into a way of being that is always moving, always being shaped and formed. We are invited to be shaped and formed more and more in the way of Jesus every day. Uh, We are invited to wake up each morning and say, Jesus, show me more of who you are and who you created me to be. Because there's always more. There's always more. Uh, Let's look at the Ephesians text. Paul said in Ephesians, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Paul, Paul is writing to a group of Christians, a small group of Christians in the city of Ephesus in the first century. And so he, he is asking God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know God better. He is asking God to open the eyes of their hearts that they would be enlightened. Uh, This is ongoing. It's not, okay, I I believe in Jesus and now just waiting till the next life. It's this life right here, right now, that we are invited into something deeper. Uh, we have eyes. We have two eyes to see, but there is this, uh, the mystics talk about having a third eye. The third eye. It, it is seeing the essence of things. It is a, a, a contemplative eye that can reflect and see more deeply, and it's a recognition that we constantly need that eye fine-tuned because there's always always more to see. God is always inviting us to see more. Um, it, it takes cultivation, though, doesn't it? We, we don't just get this way of seeing without practice. Uh, just like a great athlete doesn't become a great athlete overnight, N- no one of us in this room uh, gets to step into the swimming pool and have a great time or, or run a marathon without training for the marathon or uh, shoot a basketball the way Steph Curry shoots a basketball without intense training. Uh, and, and so the invitation isn't, hey, just, just see more deeply, would you? Uh, it, it is an invitation to a practiced way of life where we are trained in the way of Jesus to see more deeply, to hear more clearly, to have our hearts opened more fully to all that God is inviting us to. Here's part of uh, the issue I think the people in Nazareth are wrestling with, is they've made it all about intellectual ascent. They know the scriptures. Uh, Many of them had memorized huge chunks of the scriptures. Uh, They knew the stories well. And they are convinced that they know what they mean. They are convinced that they have the right interpretation of the holy text. They are convinced that they know what the Messiah will be like. They are convinced that their version is the right version. And when this kid who grew up in their hometown grows up to be this great teacher and Messiah, they simply can't believe it because they know. They know God, they know the scriptures, and they know what the Messiah should look like, and it ain't him. Uh, I wonder in what ways we are convinced that we know. And when we're convinced that we know, 
our hearts become callous and we're no longer open to what God is doing in our midst. We, we are a people who God has created in his image to reflect him, to look like him. And the way we become more like God is by knowing God more fully and knowing ourselves more fully. Uh, unless we do the hard work of reflecting on our own stories and reflecting on God and who God is, we cannot become the people God invites us to be. Notice what St. Augustine said, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Uh, Augustine was convinced that if we truly knew ourselves, we would know God more fully. He was convinced that if, if we could get to the depths of our origins found in God, that we could know God more fully. But, but we live in a world that doesn't reflect. We live in a world that's go, 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 busy, busy, busy. Uh, and, and so we fail often to take the space to reflect and to truly know ourselves and know God. Uh, put differently, St. Francis said, who are you, O God, and who am I? Uh, maybe this is one of the best prayers we could pray each morning when we get up. Who are you, O God, and who am I? Simply asking God to reveal more of God's self to us and asking God to reveal more of who we are so that we can live into that. Uh, when Jesus had died and then rose again and many of his followers did not know that Jesus had rose again uh, there's a story that Luke tells in Luke 24 these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're, they're going home so uh, Emmaus, uh, about, I think, approximately seven miles from Jerusalem. They had been in Jerusalem. They had been with Jesus. They were part of his following. They were convinced that he was the Messiah, uh, but they still had their ideas of what the Messiah would be, that, that he would be an earthly king, that he would drive out Rome. And then he died on the cross, and their whole world was shattered. And they had the sense that we, we believed. We really thought he was the one who would liberate us. And they are walking back to Emmaus. They're going home because for them it, it's over. And they realize, oh man, we got caught up in what we thought was a messianic movement. And we were wrong. And so sadly, they're walking home. And Jesus meets them on the road, but they don't recognize him. And he comes alongside them and he says, what are, you, what are you talking about? And they tell him, well, we, we're talking about this. Man, we're, haven't you heard what has happened? We're talking about this guy, Jesus. He, and we believed he was the Messiah, but he died. He was crucified. And it, it's over. And so Jesus starts 
to tell them why the Messiah had to suffer. Starts explaining, I, I can't imagine, what, why wasn't this recorded? Why didn't we get this as part of the Gospels? Uh, it's one of the most frustrating sections of the Gospels for me to not have these words that Jesus shared with these disciples along the road. But the text tells us that he began to share with them from Moses all the way through the prophets why the Messiah had to suffer. And they're, they're just blown away by this. But here's the thing. They still don't recognize Jesus. And they, invite, they get to their home and they invite Jesus into their home and they, they say, come into our home with us. And Jesus takes the bread. He, he's uh, usurping first century custom here. In, in our custom, right? If someone walked into your home and said, let me serve you, it would feel a little awkward, right? Uh, but this is what Jesus does. He walks into their home and he takes the bread. And he breaks it. And when he broke the bread, the text says, their eyes were opened. And they saw him. It's the third eye. And they saw Jesus. And then he disappeared. And they ran back to Jerusalem. Because the story wasn't over. What they thought was finished, what they thought was over, what they thought was dead and gone, had only just begun. Uh, Jesus was doing a new thing. This, this image we have in Luke 24, that there was a similar image given to us in the scriptures over something that was eaten, where eyes were opened. And it was in Genesis 3 where the first humans were tempted to take the fruit and eat it. And, and rather than going to God and asking God, what's this fruit all about? Will you explain it to us? Rather than allowing God to be the one who served them, they served themselves. They, they took the fruit and ate it. And the text tells us when they ate it, their eyes were open. This first couple in Genesis, their eyes were opened and they saw death. They saw fear. They saw their own nakedness and shame. But in Luke 24, when Jesus serves this couple and they allow Jesus to serve them, their eyes are opened and they see love and they see light and they see new life. A whole new world beginning right in their midst. Their eyes are opened in a whole new way. I believe this is the invitation from Jesus, that our eyes be opened in a whole new way, that we allow Jesus to serve us rather than us serve ourselves, that we allow Jesus to love us so that we can love the world, that we allow Jesus to be who Jesus is rather than us make Jesus in our own image. Jesus invites us into a new way of seeing. And he says, if you would just open your eyes and see, if you would just simply open your ears and listen, if you would take the space to do this, 
if you would simply open your heart to me and turn, I'll, I'll heal you. I'll heal you. Uh, but so often we live our lives with blocks over our heart, don't we? We don't want to be seen. We don't want to be known. And then there's a deeper part of us, though, that does. Because we were created for it. We were created to be known. We were created to be seen. Uh, We live with this fear that if we are seen, if we are known, we'll be rejected. But the deeper way of seeing is that when we allow ourselves to truly be seen and truly known and truly vulnerable, that's when healing happens. That's when beauty happens. That's when we allow Jesus in to do the work he's longing to do in our hearts and lives. Uh, This morning, as we come and take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, I want to invite you uh, to ask God to open your eyes, to open your ears, to open your heart, and to see more fully. Uh, Maybe we can put that St. Francis prayer up. Uh, Perhaps we come forward asking this, uh, who are you, O God, and who am I? God, thank you that you are a God who heals, that you are a God who opens eyes and ears and hearts. I pray this morning as we remember what you did for us on the cross, that you gave your life for us and for the sake of the world, that you served us so that we could serve you and serve the world, that you loved us so we could love you and love the world. God, I pray that you would wake us up more fully to who you are and to who you created us to be. God, please this morning open our eyes more fully, our ears more fully, and our hearts more fully. And I pray that you would do a deeper work of healing in each of us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.